I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer, a private equity firm focused on making investments in the cannabis industry. The company considers business opportunities as the legalization of marijuana continues throughout the United States. Some of Privateer's portfolio companies include Leafly, a user-generated reviews website for all things cannabis-related, Tilray, a producer of medical cannabis in British Columbia, Canada, and Marley Natural, a global brand in partnership with the Bob Marley family. The company is located in Seattle, Washington. Welcome. Thank you, Jessica, for having me. I want to talk first about the history of marijuana. When was the first use of marijuana? Oh, gosh. You know, there are uh, reports of uh, cannabis being used 5,000 years ago in China. So we know it's at least um, been used or consumed by humans for 5,000 years. Hmm. And where is it best grown? I've been in this industry for about uh, five and a half years, and I've probably met the world's best cannabis grower about a thousand times. Uh, you know, every place I go, um, every grower I meet claims to be the best, uh, the best grower. And what is your opinion? <laughs> <laughs> I think that there are different um, different products grown well in different parts of the world. So certainly, British Columbia has a well-known reputation for outdoor-grown natural cannabis at very high latitude. You can go to places like Jamaica or India or the. Uh, the Middle East and cannabis is is grown and consumed. It's an interesting product in that it is produced all around the world with uh, very different uh, flavors and, and properties, very similar to tea. When was cannabis made illegal in the United States? So it was right around the end of alcohol prohibition in the uh, in the early to mid the 1930s. Cannabis prohibition uh, started. How come? Well, there's lots of different stories uh, around that. Certain people say that it had something to do with uh, William Randolph Hearst and uh, the use of hemp uh, as a newspaper material. He had a lot of investments in the forest uh, products industry in on the West Coast, printing or producing newspaper, as well as some of the petrochemical companies. DuPont is often mentioned. And many products that can be made with petrochemicals can also be made with hemp. And so there's a theory that, that those two colluded to create cannabis prohibition. And is that your theory as well? You know, I'm not really sure why it was prohibited. I, I do know that many of our investors are are in this industry, interested in this industry for a financial return, but they're also looking for a social return, a social return measured by ending the harms caused by prohibition. You mentioned your investors, and they're really they really spread across the political spectrum, uh, which is interesting to have those strange bedfellows. One of the misconceptions about this industry is that it's a, a right-left issue, and it's not. So we have investors from the, the far right who see this as a states' rights issue, as a individual civil liberties issue. We have progressive liberals who see this, I see prohibition as a form of discrimination against African Americans and Hispanic Americans who are arrested at disproportionate rates for cannabis possession or distribution. In the 1970s, President Nixon declared his war on drugs, and you know, since then, uh, I believe we've spent about two two trillion dollars fighting the war on drugs, and it's had a devastating effect. You know, it causes a lot of harm uh, and at, at tremendous expense. So we incarcerate more people per capita in the United States than anywhere else in the world. You know, recent reports show roughly 800,000 Americans have been arrested 
prosecuted and are incarcerated for cannabis possession or distribution. Those are people who have lots of different rights taken away from them. Uh, They can't vote. They can't live in public housing. They can't get food stamps. They can't have their educational support through the Department of Education. And so it's, it's devastated entire communities in the U.S. and has devastated communities specifically in the African American and Hispanic American communities. What are the uses of cannabis that we might not even know outside of, let's say, the medical, the recreational ones? Um, You smile. How come? (laughs) I do because there are so many different uses for this product that when you start to talk about it, you sound a little bit crazy. So historically, cannabis and and hemp were used for things like uh, the sails that Christopher Columbus sailed to America uh, with. Um, used for rope um, on on sailing ships. The word canvas comes from cannabis. Uh, so uh, on the uh, canisoga wagons that that were used for westward migration across the U.S., um, you know those had hemp fabric covers that you see. Uh, it was grown in in Jamestown, you know the earliest colonies, uh, as a vital crop. Um, so and grown by early you know, presidents like Jefferson and Washington on their their farms. When we see hemp, like is it all cannabis even now? So it's all it's all cannabis. It's all cannabis sativa. the The main difference is really legal in the, in the U.S. It's a legal distinction between cannabis sativa that has less than 0.3 percent THC. That's defined as hemp. Anything with more than 0.3 percent THC is defined as as cannabis. THC is tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the chemical that uh, recreational users try to uh, extract as they're smoking. Yes, it's really the psychotropic ingredient in cannabis. You mentioned uh, the medical cannabis, and when you were considering starting Privateer, you and your co-founders, Michael Blue and Christian Grow, were researching the benefits of medical cannabis. Can you talk about what, what you discovered, what you found? We entered this industry with a healthy dose of skepticism. And when we talked to to medical patients, they use medical cannabis for a wide variety of, of reasons. So um, I've talked to patients who have cancer and are going through chemotherapy, oftentimes a second or third round of chemotherapy, and the drugs that they used on the first and second round didn't work, um, but they, they, they find efficacy in medical cannabis, typically used to suppress nausea and stimulate their, their appetite. I've talked to uh, glaucoma patients who uh, use medical cannabis to reduce ocular uh, eye pressure. I've talked to patients who use it for Crohn's disease or multiple sclerosis. Um, I've talked to patients who uh, use it for pain and uh, veterans both in Canada and in the United States that use medical cannabis for the treatment of, of PTSD. When you started to think about starting Privateer, uh, you were working at Silicon Valley Bank in California. Uh, It was actually Silicon Valley Bank Analytics. Uh, What exactly were you doing for them? So I was the COO of uh, SVB Analytics, and our focus was on uh, providing valuation services to venture capital firms and venture capital-backed startups. And one of those startups uh, was an inventory software company for marijuana dispensing. Uh, And can you talk about how you got connected? Sure. So uh, we 
I like to say I, I knew a little bit about a lot of different companies, and I could typically place companies in you know, 40 or 50 niches. And one day I had a, a medical cannabis technology company from California come into our office. Uh, the bank didn't take them on as a client, but it, it got me thinking about this industry uh, or if there was an industry. And um, later that same week, I uh, happened to be driving from San Francisco to Santa Clara. It's about a one-hour drive and was listening to a, uh, a radio show, actually an NPR radio show, talking about California Proposition 19. And I thought, well, this is two data points in a week. I need to look at this industry. What and was Proposition so 19? It was a full uh, legalization for adult consumption initiative uh, that was on the, the California ballot. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer, a company focused on investing in opportunities related to legal cannabis for medical and recreational use. The company was the first in the cannabis industry to receive institutional capital, helping to legitimize this growing market. The three of you decide to to leave your st- stable jobs. And there was kind of a defining moment when, when you went to a trade show where you were looking at, you know, various people pitching their companies. Can you speak to why that was defining for you? Well, the first 18 months, we were very quiet and no one knew who we were uh, or what we were doing. And so we would we would show up at these uh, events, in, you know, wearing suits, in short haircuts. And you know, I think a lot of people thought we were with the, the DEA. Drug Enforcement Administration. And so we would go to these events. The one you're mentioning was in San Francisco. And we sat towards the front of the room and we would listen to speaker after speaker. And they were on stage just saying these crazy things that, that no one would ever say in any other industry. Like what? Oh, you know, they were talking about taking your, this was 2010, 2011. They were talking about taking your, your cannabis company public and how to raise capital. And it was just, it was, it was nuts. So we developed this technique where we would sit in the front of the room and anytime anyone said anything crazy, we would turn around and look throughout the room to see you know, who had a frown on their face or who was rolling, you know, which people were rolling their eyes, because those were the people that we wanted to talk to, because they, they were thinking about this similar to the way that we were thinking about this. It was at that moment where you decided, well, instead of being a venture capital company, we'll be a private equity company. What, what did you see as the difference? Or what was the shift in focus? That was something that took place over 12 months. You know, We originally thought we were building a venture capital firm that would make passive investments into this industry. And that was our original thesis. And when we went around the world, when we went to various states, we realized that this industry was different. It was a massive opportunity, but uh, there were no companies that were leaders. There were no standards. There were uh, unprofessional companies, unprofessional, unsophisticated managers. The marketing and branding bar was extremely low. And it was a taboo industry. So at the time, we we realized we couldn't be passive investors. We needed to be operators. We needed to take hands-on control. We needed to build teams. We needed to build relationships with external teams. Uh, you know, everything in this industry is harder. It's more difficult than anyone can possibly imagine. And so you know, we needed to recruit professional people. We needed to recruit professional vendors, you know, hiring a... Hiring a law firm or a marketing firm or a PR agency, you know, someone to do payroll or accounting or auditing, it's 
easier now, but it was harder uh, back then. And things that you know would take literally a week in any other startup I've been involved with would take three to four months. You know, finding a bank, absolutely a miserable process. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer. We'll hear more from Brendan coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer, a private equity firm focused on making investments in the cannabis industry. In the early days, uh, you had a a little motto, uh, which was, don't touch the leaf. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, so, you know, for us, we were... We were uncertain about the regulatory environment in individual U.S. states and uh, federally. We were concerned about the conflict between state and and federal law. We were we were uncomfortable five years ago touching touching cannabis in in the United States. Um, it's one of the reasons why we jumped at the opportunity uh, with Tilray in in Canada because we we had the ability to operate with a federal license in a large country. Um, that didn't have any of the conflicts between federal and state law. Right, and Tilray being a company that grows and processes and distributes medical marijuana in Canada, but and eventually perhaps globally. So then what is it that you wanted to invest in, uh, if, if not the actual leaf, if not actual growers in the United States? We were looking primarily at ancillary companies at the beginning. So uh, software companies, um, web companies, app companies, companies that provided infrastructure. So lighting. Uh, lighting any, for any, growth for growth lighting, sites. Lighting for grow facilities, um, hydroponics, anything used to grow the plant. So you know, from containers to packaging, you know, um, from really anything used to produce the product from seed to shelf is how we thought about the industry. So these are like second derivative uh, services that were helping to abet the growth of marijuana, but not touching, not, not actually investing in marijuana. I'm not sure abet is the word that I, I would well, use, but yes, support, to help yeah. support, yes. Yeah. Abet has a, yeah, is, is a little dangerous. You, you, you mentioned uh, the banks and how challenging it was to work with banks because they didn't want to be associated with cannabis. So how did you manage your cash? So we, we've been fortunate uh, in the United States and in individual states and uh, in other countries around the world in that we've always had access to um, banking relationships. So that doesn't mean that we haven't had difficulties. Uh, our first bank account was shut down, I think, after three months. Uh, our second one with a very large bank in the U.S., uh, we operated for we operated there for about 16 months. And then a compliance officer in Cleveland, Ohio, saw me on TV one day, uh, and we received a note, uh, a letter 
saying that we had 30 days to close our account or they would they would mail us a cashier's check. I think at the time we had about $4 million in the bank. Um, and so we scrambled to to find another another bank in the U.S. And our current bank, uh, we've, we've had for about three years now, and they've, they've been fabulous. You had an easier time with the banks to, to establish relationships where they are holding your cash, but most other cannabis companies don't have that luxury. How are they managing all this cash in a way that's above board? I've been in a lot of uh, uncomfortable situations in in this industry. Probably the most discomforting uh, environment is to be in a room uh, with a million dollars in cash, or be in a room uh, with two million dollars in cash. It's it's discomforting. Uh, it's smelly, um, and it doesn't feel like a secure environment. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of the larger, more legitimate operators in places like Washington and, and Colorado have to have to operate for now. You know, they operate on cash. They uh, they pay payroll with cash. They pay their taxes with cash. They pay their rent and or mortgages with cash. And it's just, it creates a lot of very, very unsafe transactions that, that put people in, in harm's way. Now, did you benefit from your relationship with Silicon Valley Bank? We did. That helped us to facilitate relationships with um, banks at the at the very beginning of of this process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it didn't help on the venture capital side. Uh, you know, when we first started in this industry, we went and met with a lot of individual partners at, at venture capital firms to let them know what we were doing. But we also started every meeting by saying, you know, "You're never going to invest with us. You're no, never going to invest in our company." And that that's a different type of venture capital meeting. It was much more interactive because they they knew that we weren't expecting an investment from them at the time. Why was that? We had those meetings because we were concerned about reputational risk. And and we had a lot of conversations with former colleagues, colleagues with our friends and family, um, letting them know why we were doing what we were doing and how we were thinking about this industry. No partner at a venture capital firm five years ago wanted to be known as, as the partner who made the first investment in the cannabis industry. Now, what were some uh, key moves that you made or that happened out in the in the legal realm that were helpful to you? I think the biggest change that happened over the, the five years uh, is that in uh, in November of, of 2012, Washington State and Colorado legalized recreational cannabis. A year later, both states opened up retail stores. That was a dramatic shift in, in the environment that this was happening and the federal government wasn't stopping it. This is m- progressing at such a rapid stage that uh, I, think we're, I think we're past the point of, of no return. I think the, the toothpaste is out of the tube and, and no one can put it back in at this point. You mentioned uh, things that were happen out, happening outside the company to, you know, you had, the wind at your, you had the wind at your back. But how about inside, you know, for example, a U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration official named Patrick Moen came on board and became your uh, chief of compliance. It's clear what those optics are, but can you speak to that further? Sure. So Patrick Moen was a uh, special agent in charge of a Drug Enforcement Administration field office in, in Oregon. And one day while he was driving, he heard uh, an interview with me on the radio. And uh, he had been thinking about um, 
cannabis prohibition and thinking about a career change. And so he uh, connected with me on LinkedIn. His profile said he was with the Department of Justice. And so I met with him uh, very nervously uh, at a, a Starbucks in Portland, Oregon one day uh, in the summer of 2013 and you know, went in immediately could pick out the the DEA agent, uh, sat across from him with my coffee, and he slipped me his card. And he was with the DOJ, but he was really with the the DEA. Uh, That was my first surprise. My second surprise was when he slipped me uh, a white envelope, and I thought it might be uh, something bad. Um, My adrenaline kicked in, uh, thinking that it was a subpoena or something like that, and it was his resume. That measure, along with the institutional capital that came afterwards, further helped to meet your your mission, which is just adding an institutional credibility to your pursuit. That's right. And so, you know, for us, it was it was very difficult to raise our initial round of capital, seven seven million dollars. Um, in in March of 2015, we closed a, a round of, of $75 million, and it was a much easier round to close. The, the key milestone uh, in that raise was that we announced we were the first uh, institutional investor to make an investment in, into this industry. That institutional investor was the, the Venture Capital Fund, the Founders Fund, uh, which is led by the PayPal founder, Peter Thiel. How did you meet Peter so, or his people? It was a long process. In September of 2013, I was contacted by Jeff Lewis, one of the principals at Founders Fund. He had been looking at the industry and had come across, Privateer Holdings had come across me. He came into my office and I gave him our pitch, and that started a, a 16-month process where we would meet with individuals from Founders Fund in Seattle or San Francisco or New York or in British Columbia, and ultimately it led to an investment by them in December of 2014. What about the early capital raise when you were piecing together, uh, you know, it was a forced march in raising that initial $7 million. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I spoke at a, a private equity conference uh, in uh, in Europe, and the organizers did a great job of not really telling people what industry it was from. So I got on stage and, and started by saying, you know, I just closed the most difficult private equity round in the last 10 years. And about 10 minutes in, I mentioned the word cannabis for the first time. And and so I'd sort of hooked them. And afterwards, a lot of people came up to me and said, I can't imagine raising any capital for cannabis companies. Yeah. And so it was it was just, it had its own challenges. Like what? what what's one anecdote, for example, that you can remember? So, uh, I mean, the biggest challenge is that none of our capital could come from an institutional investor in that round. So all of our capital, $7 million, came from essentially angel investors and single-family offices. And that just, it takes time. It took hundreds and hundreds of meetings to raise $7 million. I probably did that, that, that Series A pitch close to 500 times. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer, a company focused on investing in opportunities related to legal cannabis for medical and recreational use. We're talking about prohibition, and this prohibition kind of echoes, in a way, the repeal of prohibition with alcohol. And there's a story of um, President Kennedy's father, Joseph P. Kennedy, who was kind of in a similar moment to you, kind of seeing the repeal coming 
and positioning himself in a way that he would benefit. Can you talk? Can you tell us that story? Sure. So you know, when we were looking at this industry, we tried to find other similar events in history that were similar to cannabis prohibition or the end of cannabis prohibition. And so we looked at the end of alcohol prohibition in the 1930s. And we looked at, uh, there was a Canadian family, the Bromfman family, who generated significant wealth with Canadian brands uh, towards the end of alcohol prohibition. And then Joseph P. Kennedy, who positioned himself well by uh, securing European brands for sale in in the United States as prohibition end. And that seemed like uh, the right model. It seemed like the right strategy. And so that's that's one of the reasons why we focus on brands in the cannabis industry. Now, the brands that he secured the, the licenses to were like Gordon's Gin and Dewar's Whiskey, and he was importing. It was what was it, Somerset Importers? That yes, this company. The Bromfin family in in Canada did something similar with Seagrams. Sometimes comparisons are odious. Like how how is this not? the repeal of alcohol prohibition? I think one reason why the end of cannabis prohibition is is different from the end of alcohol prohibition is that alcohol prohibition was relatively short. And so there was still a lot of infrastructure that was in place from pre-prohibition infrastructure. In, In this industry, it's really all being created from scratch. It's been well over 75 years, and there aren't robust models. There's not robust infrastructure for the end of cannabis prohibition. All of that needs to be created. I want to talk about the image of cannabis, which you're trying to to change by bringing, you know, like this corporate responsibility to the industry, um, to this kind of Wild West. Um, You hired a branding company called Heckler Associates. What are some brands that they represent? They represent New Balance tennis shoes. Probably the, they're best known for uh, Starbucks, for naming Starbucks, and for designing uh, the original Starbucks logo. What do you want your association to be? Our focus is on building companies, uh, building professional teams, building brands that can fuel change. You know what we learned as we as we looked at this industry is that this is a mainstream product consumed by mainstream people around around the world. And every brand that we looked at four years ago, five years ago, uh, really embraced the ubiquitous cliches around cannabis. And, and that was really dissimilar to the consumers that, that we saw. Um, so you had this New York Times ad that kind of helped to perpetuate this new image. Can you talk about that ad? Sure. So it really started as an exercise. Uh, it started as an exercise as we were working on the Leafly brand. And we thought, okay, what does the first mainstream cannabis advertisement look like? You know, what would an, a page look like in, in the New York Times? And in July of 2014, a couple of different things happened. Governor Cuomo in New York signed the Compassionate Care Act in the law, and the following week, the editorial board for the New York Times um, endorsed the end of cannabis prohibition or the legalization of cannabis. And we we took that old ad that we had created as an exercise off the shelf. Uh, we rapidly made changes uh, and contacted the New York Times advertising section to see if they would let us uh, place an ad in in the New York Times and. They got back to us that same day. Uh, it was far less difficult than we imagined, and we placed the ad. And it was it was really covered around uh, covered around the world. 
Well, what did the ad look like? What was the exercise? Obviously, a New York cityscape, um, two people in front of a brownstone, one woman uh, jogging, and a, uh, a well-dressed gentleman uh, coming out of his, his brownstone apartment. And uh, it talks about the two, brain, the two strains of cannabis that they consume and why they consume them. There was a, a, a New York Magazine article uh, in in the fall of 2015 talking about, you know, big cannabis. There's some public health concerns uh, with the growing legalization of the industry, how the EPA or the Environmental Protection Agency and the FDA, they haven't caught up yet. And so people are using just these noxious chemicals in helping to grow the, the plant like Avid and Floramite, for example. Um, can you speak to kind of how you're helping, if at all, to rein in that type of activity? Sure. Every batch of medical cannabis that we produce in Canada is tested for mold, mildew, fungus, pesticides, heavy metals. It's tested for microbials like salmonella and E. coli. You know, there's no other... There's no other country in the world, no, no U.S. state that tests for all of those things. And every single batch uh, that we sell has to be tested for those things. And so... That's why we. That's why we're interested in Canada because it's very difficult to produce there, use under those regulations, and that uh, that process has educated us uh, so that we can operate in other countries in around the around the world and help help create standards, help create regulations that are safer for consumers, safer for patients. I think that's the way the whole industry is is going. Mm-hmm. I would say that every product sold. You know, eventually every product sold will be safer than the the glad bag that someone can can purchase on the streets of New York. You live in Washington, where recreational cannabis is legal. Do you smoke marijuana? Uh, so I grew up in San Francisco, and I went to Berkeley, and certainly was exposed to cannabis at an early age. You know, it was not something that. I took a liking to. It's something that I consume occasionally. I'm more of a single beer person on a on a Friday night than than cannabis. You run triathlons, right? Uh, I have run uh, I have run six Ironman uh, triathlons. Yes. Your wife is a ballet dancer uh, with the Pacific Northwest Ballet, and you have one daughter. One daughter, Eleanor. What do your parents do? Um, I'm one of seven children. My mother stayed at home and raised us until I was uh, a freshman in high school, and then she went back to school. She was a a counselor, and my father taught high school science for 38 years. What kind of child were you? (laughs) Uh, I was uh, the sixth of seven children. we have a friend of the family who gave everyone uh, different nicknames. I was the the quiet Kennedy. We were talking about reputational risk uh, earlier, and we were talking about having conversations with friends and family, and that was actually probably one of the more difficult things that we had to do, right? I had to have a conversation with my wife and say, I'm thinking about going into the cannabis industry. And I had to have that same conversation with my six brothers and sisters uh, and with my parents who are older. They're in their 80s. They're far more, um, you know, despite being from San Francisco, they're far more Frank Sinatra than than Grateful Dead. Uh, And that was a difficult conversation. And I had to have a conversation with my in-laws, my wife's parents, who are from from Georgia. Uh, And so there's those 
those little things that you don't think about that mm-hmm. you know you, you certainly cause a lot of stress as you're anticipating those conversations. So it probably helped being the quiet Kennedy because inherent in that maybe is a responsible Kennedy. Uh, perhaps you know a lot of people were really worried that I was throwing it all away by jumping into this industry. How do they feel now? <laughs> a lot of people that thought we were crazy five years ago. Um, uh, now they think we're a lot smarter than, than they did. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. My guest has been Brendan Kennedy, co-founder of Privateer. Coming up, we'll meet Ethan Brown, founder of Beyond Meat. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.